Chapter 7 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Bunker Hill. Boston, in the year 1775, was situated on the peninsula covering the middle of the harbor. There were hills on the mainland extending about this peninsula, and on these hills the poorly equipped but desperate and determined Yankee farmers were assembled. Men were rushing to join their hardy comrades, and from all the neighboring colonies powder and shot were being hastily carried. Some of the most exciting experiences of the entire war were had by the hardy colonists as they hastened to Cambridge with the ammunition for the Tories were watchful, and doing their utmost to take the supplies, and cut off the men who were rallying to the aid of their comrades. The people were becoming thoroughly aroused now, and the bitter feelings that lasted until long after the war was ended were expressing themselves in a manner that did not always reflect credit upon the leaders. Mass meetings were held, and though in many instances the men who addressed them were dignified, in others, it is to be feared that they were not always careful to see that their hearers were kept back from deeds of which doubtless afterwards they were thoroughly ashamed. The following clipping from the Pennsylvania packet of May 15, 1775, gives us an idea of how angry and excited the people conducted themselves. Quote, the Committee of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, met yesterday, and recommended the people to associate themselves into companies and learn the military exercise of arms. The unanimity, prudence, spirit, and firmness which appeared in the deliberations of yesterday do honor to Bucks County, and will, we hope, in some measure wipe off those aspersions they too deservedly lay under. A large number of the inhabitants assembled, and the resolves of the day being made public, they testified their highest approbation of the conduct of the committee. A disciple of that species of creatures called Tories, being formally introduced to a tar-barrel, of which he was repeatedly pressed to smell, thought prudent to take leave abruptly, lest a more intimate acquaintance with it should take place." Unquote. It is to be feared that the tar-barrel was a too common attendant at the patriotic meetings, and the only excuse that can be offered for its use is that the people were suffering from excitement as well as from injustice, and did not always bear in mind that the measures they employed were not justified even by oppression. New Jersey appropriated the money then in the treasury of the colony arguing that as the Jersey men had first given the money, it now by right belonged to them. In South Carolina, the committee urged people, even when they went to church, to carry arms. In North Carolina, the warm-hearted Scotch-Irish patriots of Mecklenburg County declared that the address of Parliament and the King in the preceding February had, quote, annulled and vacated all civil and military commissions granted by the Crown, and suspended the constitution of the colonies, unquote and that these rights now belong to the colonies themselves. This action of the Mecklenburg Patriots has been known as the, quote, Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, unquote, and has been called the first act of its kind. But the matter is somewhat hazy, and evidently was the work of a few men in whatever light it may be viewed, and consequently can hardly be dignified by the title bestowed upon it. It was a sample expression of the feeling, however, which now seemed to have seized upon the greater part of the people in every one of the colonies. General Gage and his army were practically shut in and besieged in Boston Town, at least from the land side. But on the 25th of May, Howe, 
Clinton, and Burgoyne arrived with reinforcements, and so the number of redcoats was raised to about 10,000 men. There had been no ships to oppose the landing or entrance of these men, for the Americans were practically without a navy at that time. General Gage, reassured by the coming of the new troops and confident that the rebellion would be speedily crushed, at once issued a proclamation in which he offered pardon to all the rebels who would at once lay down their arms and promise to be true to King George, that is, all except John Hancock and Samuel Adams, who in his eyes were much too wicked ever to receive pardon in this world or in the world to come. Gage also, and very unwisely from his point of view, threatened, in his proclamation, to hang every man taken with arms on his person. How angry this made the colonists, and how little effect his words had, may be known by the following extract from a poem that appeared in one of the strongest Whig papers of that time. Quote, Tom Gage's proclamation, or blustering denunciation, replete with defamation, threatening devastation, and speedy subjugation, of the new English nation. Who shall his pious ways shun? Whereas the rebels hereabout are stubborn still, and still hold out, refusing yet to drink their tea, in spite of Parliament and me, and to maintain their bubble right, prognosticate a real fight preparing flints and guns and ball, my army and the fleet to maul, mounting their guilt to such a pitch as to let fly at soldiers' breach, pretending they designed a trick, though ordered not to hurt a chick, but peaceably, without alarm, the men have conquered to disarm, or, if resisting, to annoy, and every magazine destroy, all which, though obliged to bear, through want of men, not of fear, I'm able now by augmentation to give a proper castigation, for since the addition of the troops, now reinforced as thick as hops, I can, like Jemmy at the Boyne, look safely on, fight you, Burgoyne, and mow like grass the rebel Yankees. I fancy not these doodle dances. Yet ere I draw the vengeful sword, I have thought fit to send abroad this present gracious proclamation, of purpose mild the demonstration that whosoever keeps guns or pistol, I'll spoil the motion of his sistole. But every one that will lay down, his hanger bright and musket brown, shall not be beat, nor bruised, nor banged, much less for past offences hanged. But if on surrendering his Toledo, go to and fro, unhurt as we do. But then I must, out of this plan, lock both Samuel Adams and John Hancock, for these vile traitors, like debentures, must be tucked up at all adventures, as any proffer of a pardon would only tend those rogues to harden. But every other mother's son, the instant he destroys his gun, for thus doth run the king's command, may, if he will, come kiss my hand, and to prevent such wicked game as, pleading the plea of ignoramus, be this my proclamation spread, to every reader that can read, and as nor right nor law has known, since my arrival in this town, to remedy this fatal flaw, I hereby publish martial law. Meanwhile, let all and every one who loves his life forsake his gun, and all the counsel by mandamus, who have been reckoned so infamous, return to their habitation, without or let or molestation. Thus graciously the war I wage, as witnesseth my hand, Tom Gage. By command of Mother Carey, 
Thomas Fluker, Secretary. Fearful of what the effect of Gage's proclamation might be, it was determined by the little army that was besieging Boston to act before the British could do anything to carry out this threat. Accordingly, twelve hundred men were to be sent to occupy Bunker Hill. This hill was one of several just north of Boston, and if once it was fortified, it would enable the guns to be trained upon the fleet lying in the harbor below. How seriously the Patriots entered into the work can be judged from the fact that on the night of June 16, 1775, the 1,200 men selected for the task of occupying Bunker Hill before they were started from the camp were paraded on Cambridge Common, and the president of Harvard College, Dr. Langdon, offered a public prayer for them all. Then, silently, with Colonel Prescott, who had seen much service in the French and Indian War, in command, they started for the hill. When they arrived there, it was decided to go on a little farther and use Breed's Hill instead of the one to which they had been sent, for acting upon their own responsibility, they thought this would give them a better place from which to command both the town and the British fleet in the harbor. This change proved to be all right in the end, but if the Redcoats had adopted a different plan from the one they followed, it might have fared badly with the Patriots, as they might have been cut off from their comrades and besieged until they were compelled to surrender. It was almost midnight when the Patriots at last stood on Breed's Hill, but with pick and shovel they at once began to work. Steadily and with the least possible noise the men toiled on. It was too late to stop now, and the only thing they could do was to go on. When at last the June morning of the 17th dawned, the enemy on the ships discovered what the Yankees had been doing. Doubtless they had heard of the wonderful lamp Aladdin had, and how in a single night by the aid it afforded a magnificent palace had been erected. But here, right before their eyes, was something almost as marvelous. The busy patriots had thrown up entrenchments within a few hours, and that, too, right within the hearing of the call of the British sentry at night. The startled sailors were immediately summoned to duty, and the roar of the great cannon roused everybody in or near Boston. The people in the town ran to the roofs of the houses and watched the actions of the men on the fleet and those on the hill. But the Yankees kept right on with their labors, and as long as the British only made a noise, they did not seem to care, but worked steadily on the entrenchments. More men and leaders had come now. There was Dr. Warren, the Boston physician, who had just been made a major general, but who preferred to serve with his gun as a private. Colonel Stark was also there, and so was doughty Israel Putnam, and their presence was an inspiration to every man toiling with a spade or pickaxe. As a matter of course, General Gage was as angry as he was startled when he discovered what those despised Yankees had been doing. In the morning, while the guns of the fleet were thundering, and the shot fell harmless against the slope of Breed's Hill, he was holding a consultation with the other leaders of the British who had recently arrived upon the scene of action. They were all agreed that it would never do to permit the Yankees to plant their guns on the height they were attempting to fortify but as almost every one was of the opinion that the rebels would never stand before the veteran soldiers of King George, wiser counsels were disregarded, and it was decided to send 3,000 men to drive the farmers from the hill. And all through these hours the despised farmers were working as busily as bees at the task to which they had set themselves. It was about noon when the redcoats were seen to be crossing the river in their boats. Without doubt the desperate men on Breed's Hill did not enjoy the sight, but the brave man is not the one who never feels fear, but the one who goes right on with his duty in spite of his alarm. After the British had landed, they formed in two divisions, 
one to move upon the line of rail fence on the hillside, and the other toward the entrenchments. Their uniforms and glittering weapons must have presented a sight that might well have caused the poorly equipped and inexperienced farmers to tremble, but not one left his place. Grim, desperate, and determined, they watched the oncoming ranks and, with their guns in their hands, waited. The people on the housetops almost held their breath in their excitement. Steadily the scarlet-clad soldiers moved up the hill, and a silence almost like death itself rested over all. The very stillness encouraged the British, who did not for a moment believe the peasants, as some termed the Yankee soldiers, would wait to receive the charge of the regulars. Nearer and nearer they came, and at last were within a hundred and fifty feet of the patriots, and then the waiting farmers, at the word of their leaders, suddenly poured a terrible volley into the front ranks of the redcoats. Men and officers fell, and for a moment it almost seemed as if the advancing line had blotted out. The redcoats, however startled they may have been, were no cowards, and holding their ground tried to return the fire, but in a moment the line wavered, then broke, and in great disorder turned and fled down the hillside. Then such a shout went up from the patriots as can be heard only when an action like that which had come to the desperate men occurs. They were ready to leap over the embankments and chase the fleeing redcoats into the water, but, though it was with great difficulty, the officers restrained them, and the exultant Minutemen remained behind the breastworks. There was a break in the fight now, and during the interval the fleet began to fire shells into Charlestown, where the few wooden houses were soon in flames. But the sight of the burning houses only increased the rage of the men on Breed's Hill. Again the British formed in line, and the scarlet ranks advanced up the hill. This time the patriots waited until they had come within ninety feet of the trenches, and then again they poured their terrible fire into the ranks that were so near that they could almost behold the whites of their eyes. There was a brief and desperate struggle, and once more the regulars wavered, and then broke and fled, leaving hundreds of their comrades dead or wounded upon the field, and the farmers had been so well protected by their embankments that they had lost only a few men. The delay which now followed was longer than the preceding one, and though the men in Cambridge were trying to come to the aid of their comrades, not much was done. The powder was almost gone, and their only hope seemed to be in a hand-to-hand -hand fight. We know now that the British soldiers themselves were not in favor of trying the attack again, but the words of their leaders prevailed, and for the third time the scarlet-clad soldiers started up the sloping sides of Breed's Hill. There was now hardly sufficient powder among the Americans to permit the soldiers to fire even one volley at the approaching redcoats, but they did what was in their power, and did it with a will. Then the determined redcoats, chagrined by the former defeats and resolute as the Saxon always is, with their bayonets fixed, charged on the works. The Americans were just as stubborn, but they had few bayonets and no powder, and so they were driven slowly from the place they had so gallantly held, and Breed's Hill, and Bunker too, fell into the hands of the redcoats. But they had not gained the victory, if victory it can be called, without losing 1,054 of their brave men while the Americans had also lost 449. So the Battle of Bunker Hill, for the name of the hill to which the Patriots first had been sent was given to the fight, was fought and ended. And it is said that so impressed were the veterans of King George that never again did they willingly move upon the Americans when they were entrenched. It was a terrible fight, but it was glorious in its effect. And the memory of Bunker Hill is still an inspiration to everyone whose home is in these United States and the story will never grow old. End of chapter 7